Welcome to our very first podcast. It's called For the Love of the Game. I'm Bob Ike. I'm joined by my partner, Mark Doche. We are the owners, founders, and principals of horsebills.com and presenting this podcast. We like to think it's going to be about success stories of our guests, the backstories maybe that you haven't heard before, their trials and tribulations and all the hard work that got them there and striving to achieve those goals. Mark, good morning, and how are you today? Doing good, Bob. Looking forward to getting some in-depth information from some of the prominent players in the game, trainers, owners, um, very interesting backstories. We're going to start off with uh, trainer Richard Baltus, who's become one of the prominent trainers in Southern California and now on the national landscape with a few uh, next shares in the Breeders' Cup Mile, a couple of other horses potentially can get in on the also eligibles, but uh, he's making an impact in big races around the country. And we sat down with him at Clocker's Corner earlier this week and did an in-depth interview about his career. And I think the listeners will find it very interesting. Yeah, I agree. And what we're going to try to do every week, Mark, is bring you the stories that people haven't heard. I mean, everybody knows now that Richard Baltus is a top 25 trainer in the country. But listen to what we have to talk to him about and and find out it didn't start that way. I mean, he had to really work his way up. And those are the stories that we want to bring people, the success stories. But but how did they get there? And, and Mark, just a quick word on horse bills and, and about you and me and how we got started. Uh, you're the founder and CEO of Horse Bills, but it didn't start out that way for you. You've done sports publicity and marketing. You've done real estate, mortgages and loans, but your real passion has been with horse racing and you kind of did everything you could to get into this business. You start bringing your phone and camera out and interviewing some of the individuals. You started something called the Pick 4 blog. You wanted to get credentialed in the business and, and it's been your passion. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it, there came a point in my life in my you know mid-30s that I wanted to get back into, into sports and media after having been doing real estate and mortgages. And the, the easiest outlet for me and the, the sport I liked the most was horse racing. So um, I, I brought my, my camera to the track at Clocker's Corner in the morning, just started meeting people. And from there, uh, I became you know kind of known in the industry for, for doing that. We met, we met in the press box. Um, that was your, been your stomping grounds for decades. And so, um, what, what really triggered the horse goes concept though, was I started owning some race horses at the time, some, some, some fractional ownership and, and some horses and getting five, six, seven bills every month from just different vendors and having to write a check to all those different vendors every month. Wasn't the most efficient process by any means when, when all the other bills I'd been receiving from my day-to-day -day life, but you can pay online and that wasn't available in horse racing. And so not only just paying online, but just being able to receive bills via email, not having to deal with snail mail in this day and age uh, should be, should have been a, a standard operating procedure like it is in other industries, but it wasn't in horse racing. So that spawned the idea to write the business plan for horse bills and I pass it on to you. And it, it struck a, a, a trigger for you as well with your work that you didn't doing with, with the syndicate summit racing and noticing the same inefficiencies. And so after your career, a long career as a newspaper handicapper, uh, you, you hopped on board with me. And uh, now four years later, here we are. We have a successful business and we get to interact with lots of successful trainers and owners. And now we're going to work on bringing that uh, to, the, to the racing fans, their stories and um, how we're the business side of the game and how 
it operates behind the scenes. Absolutely. And, you know, we're more than four years. We're really about six years in when you consider the business plan, the, the concept, the business model you wrote, the development of the site. We launched almost exactly four years ago. So uh, we've struggled and we've fought, we've scratched and clawed and, and we're in a good place now and we're just going to keep getting better. And just quickly, uh, my background, I was in the newspaper business for about three decades and uh, you came to me with this idea. I had just turned 50 years old and I was getting ready for a change. And, you know, I started working for the papers right out of college, making $40 a week with the Oceanside Blade Tribune. Not exactly what my parents were hoping for after I came out of an expensive liberal arts college, but racing was my passion too. And I kept fighting and getting different jobs and different papers would, would uh, open up and and so that's where we're at, Mark, and uh, I'm glad we're in this together now, and uh, we've, we've met some great people along the way, and, and really kind of our biggest client right now, Richie Baltus, uh, let's listen to what he have to st- had to say. It's about a 20 to 25-minute interview. I think the fans are going to like it, and then right afterwards, you and I are going to talk Breeders' Cup, who we like in a few of the big races. So stay tuned for that right after the Richie Baltus interview. You're listening for the love of the game, our very first podcast, our first episode, and our first guest is Richard Baltus. We are here at Clocker's Corner with trainer Richard Baltus. Uh, Richie, the name of our podcast is for the love of the game. And what got you interested in horse racing? Um, my father, uh, I was... We went and moved to Southern California, I don't know what year it was, I think it was in fourth grade, and my dad started taking me to the races at Santa Anita, you know, back in the day. Um, and I was, every Saturday and Sunday, my dad would get in the car and drive us out here. So, you know, I saw the great horses running. I mean, I saw Pay Tribute, Ligers, been to several Santa Anita handicaps, saw the great, all the great races with Charlie Whittingham, and um, I always just, like, loved watching the horses run and I was a fan of the sport you know I was a little kid and I was fairly whatever young nine, nine or ten years old yeah fourth grade I don't know how old you yeah. fourth grade but then depends how many times you held back <laughs> where'd you guys move from we moved from Gary Indiana okay to um first we lived in Lakewood for one year and then my parents bought a house in Huntington Beach for 35,000 I think huh. it was back in 19. 70 or something like that right you know and uh so you just you got to be you were a fan to start with yeah. trying to you know probably trying to cash a ticket like all of us what about your first job in horse racing that came later you know i i um i wasn't i was a fan and then i was kept coming with my father and i went and graduated high school and then i went to junior college we didn't really know what i wanted to do i still had an interest in the sport i I was in the restaurant business and um, was working in restaurants in the night, and um, I knew that that wasn't for me. So I started looking into the horse thing. Started taking riding lessons at Huntington Beach, and wasn't very good at that. And uh, then I started asking around. And Who came gave out, you I, your first job? My first job was given to me by some guy that owned a van company, and he had an ad in the paper, and I answered it, and I drove a horse van cross-country boy that was tough you know and, long, uh, long hours on the road yeah and uh, picked up I drove first I drove it to Pennsylvania and then um, 
they had to change the weighting on it, and then I drove it down to Lexington, and um, the lady told me that if I was looking for a job, I should write this trainer a letter. And um, I did that. And who, who was that trainer? Tom Skiffington in New York. That's where you started? That was one of my first jobs on the racetrack. Right. Um, when I was look, trying to get into the business, it was very tough out here. I used to come out to Santa Anita and they were just like, they wouldn't even like talk to me hardly. And I, I'd ask to get in the backside. No one like signed me in or anything. So I kind of got a little discouraged. And um, I went to the Kentucky Derby in 83. I was still working in the restaurant business. And uh, I found out about a horse school they had in Kentucky at the horse park. And, and 84, I, I signed up for it and I moved to Lexington. 84, I went to the Kentucky Equine Institute, which was uh, put on by the Horsemen of Lexington. It was supplemented by the Horsemen of Lexington and it was also like you had to pay a little money to go to it. And they guaranteed you a job after six months of working there. So I did that. And then I quit my job at the restaurant and I drove my car to, to Lexington in 84. And then um, I went to that school and the first weekend I was there, I was working on the farms. And I went to work at Spendthrift Farm when Seattle Slough was there, affirmed, raised a native caro. So I got to see all those horses, rubbed yearlings. And I went to Saratoga for the yearling sale came back and then I started trying to get a job at the racetrack because I was you know I really wanted to work at the track I didn't want to work on the farms right and uh, I always wanted to be a trainer I always admired the trainers so I did that and um got a job for John Ward in Lexington rubbing horses and I, I started learning a little bit there grooming horses and then I moved back to California because it started getting cold and <laughs> I, I don't want no part of the cold <laughs> So then he came back out here and actually rubbed horses for, I groomed horses for Joe Vienna for a while. I was a groom. I started at the bottom, you know, so I already knew how to walk a horse and I just had very little experience grooming horses. So I groomed horses for Daryl when he had, uh, he had a horse called Santilla Mac that I rubbed and I guess Short Sleeves was just coming in. So, you know, he was bringing those horses from Europe. Yeah. He was one of the first guys to bring the horses from Europe and he had a lot of success. So then after that, um, yeah, I, I, then I wrote the letter to Tom Skiffington and I moved, I moved back east with him as a foreman. And then I was an assistant trainer. And who, who would you consider kind of your mentors? I would say like the guys that mentored me the best that I learned from. Um, I worked for Tom Skiffington in New York. I worked for Richard Mandela for 22 months as a foreman and assistant. And then um, I took my license out after that. So... Uh, you know, it's been a it's been a rough, long haul, but something like you know, in anything in life, I think you have to love what you do in order to be successful. So, and you can't give up. No giving up. Right. So you first, when was the first year you took out your trainer's license? Was that you were back in SoCal by then? And I think it was ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. I was in SoCal. Yeah, I ran a. Well, my father knew a man that. Uh, yeah, ninety one. 91. So after I moved to Kentucky in 84, 91, I got my trainer's license and I ran my first starter because my father knew a guy that had horses at Turf Paradise. So I had a horse come from Turf Paradise and I ran it. First, first 16 clanger at, at, at Hollywood Park and his name was Latchburn. And uh, 
The horse came in pretty fit, and I ran it first time over there, and he, uh, Georgie Velasquez was the rider, and the horse won my very first start. <laughs> You're <laughs> easy, hooked. Easy, easy game. Well, yeah, I, you know, little did I know. So from 1991 to, let's say, you know, 2011 or so, there was a long, that's 20 years before you really started to, to make it. How would you describe yourself, your, your, your personality, yourself, your life in those years when you first started training on your own? I would say, um, well, because I never really had much of a backing, I, I, I made very little money, but I also really liked what I did. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's all about getting paid, you know, you weren't getting paid by some of the clients and they get behind and then you get behind and then you start owing everybody money and then it's a bad deal. But um, I've won my short races, I've won some horses over the years and... Was there was there a gap after you first started training? You were you were an assistant trainer for a while after that before you yeah. started up again in yeah. in two thousand. Well, I, I I trained and then I stopped training because I wasn't making any money and I, I went back to being an assistant because I really loved the game, you know, and I loved being with the horses and I figured well might as well get paid instead of working for free. <laughs> being a trainer, yeah. working for free and getting into debt on top of like working for free but um yeah that i didn't i didn't have a problem taking a step back because i i didn't think a step back was was a step back i mean i you know i was an assistant trainer making i mean as a trainer making no money with bad horses with people not paying to being an assistant for richard mandala working with good horses and getting paid for it so um and learning more you know always learning in this business from different people so I think right before you went out on your own for this last time, you were assistant trainer for Barry Abrams, correct? And yes. his barn had been struggling, and you, when you started working there, there was a, a big turnaround, and they started winning. So that what, what that that gave you confidence at that point to try going out and giving yourself another crack at going on on your own. I never really looked at it like that. I mean, I didn't know what. I just tried to do the best I can. I, I mean, um, I always had a belief in my ability. So that wasn't really the issue. The issue was, you know, getting older and realizing that, you know, I'm not making any money. So actually, before Barry, I went to work. I moved to Louisiana to work for Southern Equine, Eric Eo, for yeah. two years. So that's what really, because he was training for um, Mike Marino, Southern Equine Stable, and they were paying me pretty well to be an assistant trainer. So I basically got my finances in order then, and... Um, you know, when I came back out here, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, was flying to, to Louisiana, visiting me a lot, and then I was like, you know what, I, I, there's no place like California, and uh, she actually talked to Barry, and I got the job with Barry, and then when I came back out here to work for Barry, I always thought I'd train again, I just didn't know to what level, and you know. But I was just happy to be home. I was happy to be back in California. I was happy to, to have a job. And, uh, you know, I worked for Barry for whatever, almost two years. And then I took my trainer's up, license back out again. I think I had one horse at, towards the end. Barry let me train one horse when I was working for him. And, you know, he was going through his health issues then. And, um, and I went on my own. So at that point, um, Flashy Ways came along. And what did she mean for you and your career and... and getting your barn off the ground at that point? 
Yeah, Flashy Ways was just a horse that my, my some of my friends that I met from Bloodstock Games, I think they bought her for 20 grand as a yearling and sold her to me as 30 as a two-year-old. And she won her first two starts and she won a stake in her second start and then we supplemented her to the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. She drew the 13 holes. She didn't run very good because she was, she was parked way out there. And uh, after that, um, yeah, it meant a little bit. You know, it was like one horse and two horses and four horses and... Um, I think when you start winning, people knows. Yeah. So we, we, what you've described is not hasn't been an overnight success, but at that point, you went from you know six years ago from one horse to six years later a hundred horses, and so kind of your dreams finally came true. Could you have imagined that happening at that point when you had that one horse in 2012? No. You know, I never imagined that I'd have as many horses. I don't have a hundred horses now, but uh, you know, um, being in one of the top. 25 in the United States, that's a big accomplishment for me. Um, I never thought it would happen, but I always, in the back of my mind, thought it could happen. Because I always, like, thought, you know what, I've worked for some really good trainers, and, you know, it's about learning and wanting to do this job and getting the right horses. How has um, settling down and get, getting married, has that had a positive on your career? Oh, I think so. Yeah, you know, I mean, it kind of goes with the job, you know, um, especially getting up at seven, 4 o'clock. Sometimes mm-hmm. I get up at 3.30, you know. And you used to go to bed at 3.30. Oh, yeah, now, 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 you're, now you're getting up at 3. <laughs> well, yeah, I had a few of those, but not, not lately. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it works good for the trainer, to, you know. I mean, some guys aren't married. They're still great trainers, but... Um, you know, it's not a, the type of job you can go to bed late. You know, you gotta you gotta go to bed early, be fresh, ready to roll in the morning. And you know, there's a lot that hits you right. from 4 a.m. till 7 to 9 or 10. You know, especially when you have a lot of horses. You, I mean, you're you get you get slammed. I mean, yeah. mentally, you gotta be sharp. You gotta be on top of your horses. Right. Um, do you consider yourself a better turf trainer than a dirt trainer? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had a lot of success on the turf, uh, and, and um, but I've had some success on the dirt as well. I mean, I've trained grade one winner on the dirt in a short, long. I think lately I've had a lot of people buy horses that are turf horses. Right. And, you know, if they want to say that I'm better on the turf, you know, I've had more graded stakes wins on the turf. Uh, I don't, I think I, it's just trained horse, period. I think I do pretty well in the dirt. It just, you know, you got to have dirt horses. You know, Bob... Bob Baffert has a lot of dirt horses, and people say, "Well, he's maybe not a turf trainer, but I think he buys a lot of dirt horses." Right. You know. How much of success of training is 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 it the trainer, and how much is the horse being a successful trainer? I I think it's both. I, I mean, it is the horse, probably eighty percent horse, twenty percent trainer. But that being said, I think you know anybody that can train a horse can win a race. And then I think it's like anything, you know, like if you want to put this in sports terms, like running a baseball team or a football team. Right. It's a lot of teams, right? Mm-hmm. And when there's trying to win a championship, everything has to be in place. And a lot of guys can win a lot of games, but when you're trying to win a championship, it seems like the same guys keep winning all the championships. Well, you had mentioned you're in the top 25 in the country in earnings. You've led numerous meets here in Southern California. 
do you consider yourself one of the super trainers in the country that, no. that get talked about? No, I still feel like I'm an underdog, you know? I mean, I, uh, most of my horses, you know, I'm starting to get better horses and buying a little more expensive horses, you know, but um, I feel like if I'm given the right horse, I can take it all the way, you know? So it's just, it's just a matter of getting the right horses. And I don't consider myself a super trainer by any means. I mean, I, I know they say that guy's got super barns. They got 200 horses, 300 horses. Um, you know, I don't know if I really want that many horses. That's possible. You know, it takes a lot of management to run two, 300 horse star barns. But, and it's hard to look at them all. I mean, you got to have great, great help. And if you have a lot of great horses, I mean, it's kind of hard to turn away good horses. Yeah. Is it especially gratifying that you've had a, a couple of horses that have come to you from Chad Brown and some other guys that are maybe super trainers and you've been able to do well with them? Is that especially gratifying for you? It just makes me, you know, I, I think they have, like I said, they have a big, big number of horses, two, 300 horses. Uh, they have to make room for the new horses. And I think some of the horses that I might be able to get slip through the cracks or they just you know they have a lot of other horses so yeah just that I could just do as good as they could do with a horse is you know I don't know if I've done any better but I've held my own with some of those horses and and uh, yeah it makes you feel good because like you know hey like I can train with the best of them so one of those horses that came to you now is Nick Shares and he's obviously a uh, gotten a lot better in the last few months and he's going to be one of the top choices in the Breeders' Cup mile. Going into the race in Kentucky, at Kentucky Downs, he had come off a couple of subpar efforts. Did you think that he had tailed off at that point and what were you expecting going into that race at Kentucky Downs? You know, um, I there was a little dilemma going into the race at um, Del Mar. So, the Del Mar mile, um, we weren't sure we wanted to run there, but a couple of partners wanted to run. And the horse was healthy, but, you know, he he um, he drew a really bad post, and uh, the plan was to run there, and if he came back okay, to go to Kentucky Downs. Because the money's good, and, you know, we, we were, we're eligible for a restricted stake at Kentucky Downs. The purse was 250000 and... Um, you know, we sent him there early. He got a couple of gallops over the track. Um, he looked great when he was there, and he won pretty impressively. So I think maybe, you know, it has a little bit to do with the ground, that the horse likes a little more cut in the ground. It's, it's not as hard over there as it is here in the West Coast. And, you know, the horse is running good here, but I think he took it to the next level when he went back east. Well, then he took it to a, another level the next race in the Shadwell off of that win in Kentucky. Did you expect that kind of an effort from him going into that race? You know, I, I was looking that I, I told a couple of people that I that on the horse that if he ran the same race he did at Kentucky Downs, I thought he'd be very tough, and he he actually ran better than he did at Kentucky Downs. Uh, got he was closer to the pace. I always thought he was a horse that needed to be farther back, but. And I told Tyler, he, you know, just don't use him early. And he, the horse just put him in the race. I guess, I guess he's doing better and the turf is a little softer. 
Um, and when he was running here, was we were making one run from last place, and uh, he just he just seems to be thriving over there. Um, I don't know if you guys are sheet players, but he ran two zeros in a row on the thoroughgraphs, and one of them was coming from the inside, so that probably if he would have went around him, he would have run a minus number. But um, yeah, I think he's got a good chance in the Breeders' Cup month. You think so? Now you're, you're going back. You've had a couple of Breeders' Cup starters in the past few years. Mm-hmm. You're going back to Kentucky now, kind of where you cut your teeth early in your career. Do you think? kind of your career coming full circle now, going back to Churchill and having a contender in the Breeders' Cup? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean... What are those emotions like now when you think about where you were those days, early days back in Kentucky, and now going back there as training a Breeders' Cup contender? Oh, yeah, I think it's it's very gratifying, you know, and, you know, sometimes you you wonder about what's going to happen in life. You never know. I, I, I think um, it's been a long time coming, you know. I, I mean, I've had some Breeders' I had a Breeders' Cup starter in 2001 and, and with a horse I claimed that he didn't run very well in the Breeders' Cup, but he did beat the Big horse. Big mocker. No, no Freedom oh, Crest. Oh, 2001. Freedom 2001, okay. yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and he, but the horse that he beat in the Goodwood came back to win the Breeders' Cup twice, which was his now, so... Um, I think I think it just feels really good just to be successful and, and making a living and doing what you love to do and that's the main thing even through all the frustrations day in and day out you know working together whether it's not getting paid all the different things that come about with the, the profession but it's gratifying to be you know, in those big moments now yeah oh yeah I mean those are the races you want to be in What's been your biggest thrill in racing so far? So far, because there's more to come. I don't know. I, I, I always look back when I was small and I won the Goodwood and beat Tisdown and Skinny and the horse was $80, and I had a five-horse stable. Right. And I climbed the horse for Maiden 32, and I wasn't expecting to win. And, you know, and having a small barn and going to the Breeders' Cup and, you know, and then going full circle to where I'm at now, where, um, you know. Well, you come off a, a race that you won a million-dollar race, your biggest purse with, with next shares. You talk about the early wins with Freedom Crest. Was he your favorite horse or, or somewhere uh, throughout your time? What's been your favorite horse you've trained? I, don't know. I I mean, there's a lot of horses that I. I mean, I love all my horses that I train. I I think that he was the horse that overachieved. I think Big Mocker overachieved, but you know, I can't really say one. You know, I, I I really think that I was. You know, I think Freedom Crest had to be up there with number one, but it, it's hard to say. You know. All right. The previous Breeders' Club horses were all overachievers. Freedom Crest, Big Mocker, Flashy Ways, debuted in a mating claiming race. Now you're getting a lot of good horses and having success with those as well. Where do you see your career going from here um, in the next few years as, as far as barn size and kind of where, where do you picture yourself in, in, the, in the near future? I just would like to get better quality of horses. You know, I don't, I don't care about numbers. I mean, the numbers 
doesn't really mean that much to me. I, I think it's more about having the opportunities. You know, we do. I have a lot of clients that are buying horses now, um, and hopefully, we just buy the right horses. And do you still want to stay involved in the claiming game, or you'd like to transition out of that? Um, I think it it helps. You know, I know. I still like claiming horses because sometimes you get lucky and you can get a horse that can turn into being a stakes horse. And, um, you know, they don't take six months to get ready. But obviously I'd rather have quality, not quantity. And, um, you know, I always got people that want to claim horses. I think it's fun figuring horses out. Um, and usually there's a lot of owners that start with claiming horses that go away from those you know they 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 get their feet wet with the claiming horses and then they start buying babies and you know they start loving the game and um, right. that's another thing do you still find yourself being a fan do you still handicap all the breeders cup races and um gamble on them and, and are into them like you were as a fan in the early days before you got involved um you know what? I don't really have the time to go through and handicap and gamble on all the horses and all that. I do like to look at the sheets. Um, I like to handicap, and you know, sometimes I'll go through the farm at night if I'm not too sleepy, and uh, I'll do the sheet numbers. And I just like you can see a lot when you just because you're just going through every horse and you're seeing every race, and you say, "Oh, this horse looks good," or "This horse might want to do something else, go long, short." So. Um, yeah, but as far as, like, taking time out to really handicap, um, you know, I put a long, long hour days in, and, and I, like to, I like to read the forum. I like to read the sheets, but I don't have a whole lot of time to be betting on horses. How much, how much uh, throughout your career was your dad um, supporting you and, and excited about the progress that you were making in the game that he kind of brought you to when you were a kid? Yeah, it was kind of funny, you know, when I was really young, me and my father, we were like, you know, we weren't really close or anything, but um, he always took me to the track. And I, you know, I, I, I think my dad was getting some health issues when I started to, to progress. You know, I think he was very proud of me, you know, like when I moved back east and I came out here with Tom Skiffington to run a horse in a stake, and my dad was at the track, and um, I think that meant a lot to him. And then, but he didn't really get to see me to where I'm at now. You know, he died about 15, 20 years ago. So, um, but I think at the end, you know, I made a lot of peace with my father, and uh, he was very proud of me. And and um, I never, I don't think he ever expected me to be a horse trainer. To tell you the truth. Well, we're one, gonna one of the top ones in the country. We're gonna wrap it up with Richie Baltus. Uh, great example of for the love of the game Richie three grade ones in your career a million dollar race all the best going forward and good luck in the Breeders Cup thank you guys thanks for your support and thanks for horse bills all right thanks Richie well I hope everyone enjoyed that interview with Richard Baltus uh, Mark I thought it was really insightful we got a lot of background on Richard and you know from van driving a van cross country to being uh, a top 25 trainer. Quite a great story. Definitely not an overnight success. He put decades into the game and now he's reaping the rewards at this stage of his career and his life. The last six years, he's elevated himself to one of the top trainers in the country. And 
it could be a culmination for him this weekend at the Breeders' Cup um, with ne- next shares in the Breeders' Cup mile. And he's also got a chance with Lady Prancelot and potentially Insta Irma. Yeah. And let's talk about a few of these Breeders' Cup races. Uh, and, and one of those you mentioned, Lady Prancelot, will be in the Breeders' Cup juvie, Juvenile Philly and Turf. And that's a race that I'm re- really going to focus in on Friday, Mark, uh, on this, uh, you know, pick five sequence that we have the five races for juveniles on Friday. And obviously the favorite newspaper of record is going to be tough for Chad Brown. She's won both of her races by over six lengths and looks like a real monster. I think the American Phillies will do well in this spot. And the other one I like is Concrete Rose, uh, Rusty Arnold's Philly. She has just exploded in two starts. I loved her win at Keeneland. So for me, that's a race I'm going to zero in. I think the American Phillies are going to more than hold their own in there. So I'm going to use two horses in there, uh, newspaper of record and concrete rows. And, you know, you've always got to worry about the Euros in here, but I think those two are really good. Yeah, I think those two stand out. Um, they, they've won by open length. They've shown a great turn of foot on the turf. I want to look a race before that. The first race um, on the Breeders' Cup calendar, and it's the debut of the Juvenile Turf Sprint for a million dollars. And you can pretty much make a case on paper for all these horses, um, which guarantees that the horse that you settle on, you're probably going to get a really good price on. Um, the horse that that strike ball cost $1.1 million at auction. Uh, that horse is Sergei Prokayev, uh, a son of Scat Daddy, and he just exploded in his last start at Newmarket. Uh, he, he trailed the pack early. He got swung out wide, and then he mowed them all down. And so he, he, had, he came off uh, a couple of starts before that where he was a little bit of a disappointment, but he made a huge run there. Now he gets top rider Ryan Moore here for, for this event. So I look for him to make a big impact in this race. Another horse coming out of that race is going to be a huge price. Uh, Pocket Dynamo on the outside. He's listed at 20 to one on the morning line. Joel Rosario takes over and he had a world of trouble in that race from start to finish. He was bottled up. He never had any kind of running room and uh, he made a little bit of a run late when he got out, but it was, it was far too late. He has a couple of wins on his um, past performances from earlier in the year. And he ran third, second by nose to Shang 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 after that. Um, So, He's going to be a huge price, and I think he deserves a look as well. Those races in uh, in Europe generally turn out to be pretty tough. Even the horses that have come over from Europe to the States uh, and done well here, and, and some of the horses have gone from here back to Europe and done well. Um, so I, I look for those two as my top two in here. And the third one, well done, Fox, coming out of that same race again. I ran second to Sergey Prokayev, and he's had a consistent pattern a win and two second place finishes in his last three starts um, in the exact uh, six out of nine. So uh, I'll look to those three. They're all good prices. And uh, let's, let's start off the Breeders' Cup with a, a good score in, yeah, that, in the first race, the fifth race at Churchill on Friday. Yeah, that kicks off the uh, pick five that day. Mark, let's turn to Saturday and, uh, you know, a horse that I've been in love with for a while and I think is probably the most likely winner in the two days and that's in the sprint imperial hint my one concern is his two of his three bad races in his career have come right here at Churchill Downs over kind of the wet tracks so I am concerned about that although I think by Saturday if the rain passes through it looks like the weather is going to be okay for Saturday I think this horse is just a little sprinting monster Uh, Roy H beat him last year I don't know if he can beat him this year from what I've seen in the last two starts of Imperial Hint. So you need a single somewhere. 
And uh, we'll talk about a couple of the more wide open races here in a minute. But for me, Imperial Sprint, hint rather, in the sprint is a horse that I'm going to single in my sequences there. Yeah, I, I definitely think Imperial Hint has a shot. But, um, you know, like you said, his, his two races at Churchill, he hasn't hit the board. One, one of them was in the slop. One of them was a little bit earlier in his career. So maybe you can't hold that completely against him. Um, I, I don't think he's a single because, like you said, Roy H. ran him down last year. And Roy H. is, is probably coming up to his best race now, his third start since uh, coming off of that race in, in Dubai. So Roy H. ran by him last year. He's drawn outside of him this time around. I think he's going to be tough to deny again. And then you have Limousine Liberal, who the opposite of Imperial Hint. He's a core specialist, having won six of eight over this track at Churchill Downs with one second-place finish. And um, he won here in his last start over this track in the slop in the Churchill Downs in May. And he also won in the bet on Sunshine by four and a quarter length. So um, I think Limousine Liberal, a, a little bit of a price, could be could upset the apple cart just because of his affinity for this track. Well, let's look at a couple of the wide open races on Saturday. Uh, the Distaff, to me, is a, is a real question mark because of the way Abel Tasman ran last time at Santa Anita in the Zenyatta. I mean, just talk about laying an egg as the one to nine favorite. Reminded me of how Arrogate ran at Del Mar. Uh, a summer ago, a couple summers ago, before the Breeders' Cup, he was flat as a pancake, and so was Abel Tasman. Her best race probably wins it, but it's a huge question mark to me. You've got some really talented three-year-olds in here. Obviously, Monomoy Girl is good. Midnight Bizu is good. So uh, an interesting race, and, and for me, one that I am probably have to use a, at least a few horses in here. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of pace in the race, so I – and I think Monomoy Girl uh, is probably right now trending in the right direction. Um, she did kind of get tired late in the cotillion and maybe uh, moved out a little bit and got DQ'd. Um, she's, she's breaking from the 11 post here, which maybe isn't the most ideal. But if she's able to clear early, I think she can be really tough. And um, I think Midnight Bizu is, is the other one. Um, those two are three-year-olds. There's still room for improvement. Um, and Midnight Bizu might have run by her in the cotillion if there wasn't that trouble. So... I think it, it comes down to those two, um, Abel Tasman, like you mentioned, uh, off her races before that in the personal incident in the Ogden Fifths, even her race last year in the Breeders' Cup where she came up just short um, is, is a huge contender. But I don't like that race at all last time. Uh, we took advantage of the bridge jumpers in there and, and made a nice score. But that division out here on the, on the West Coast hasn't been very strong. The two that, that, the, that finished first and second, Vale Dory and LaForce, um, really haven't been uh, top-notch Phillies when you stack them up against the rest of the country and then they're back in here and they're both long shots. And so um, obviously Abel Tasman on her day is much better than those two, but um, it, it's, it's really a concern. She didn't have much of an, an excuse in that race. She did kind of uh, break a little bit slowly and maybe she didn't look like herself in the post parade. So maybe you can toss it off, toss the race that it just wasn't her day. Um, but there is some concern. And I, I always like taking the horses that maybe have more potential, the three-year-old Monomoy Gort, Monomoy Girl and Midnight Bizu fit the bill there. Um, you mentioned an Imperial Hint as your single, and uh, I'm going to go to a little bit earlier on the card for my single with uh, Catalina Cruiser. Uh, he's obviously he's inexperienced um, with only four career starts, but he's won all four in impressive fashion. Uh, he's drawn outside in here, the one-turn mile. That shouldn't be much of a problem. 
He's facing some salty older horses in here. But again, I don't see a whole lot of speed to go with him early. I think he's going to be able to clear. Uh, City of Light breaking to the inside will probably stay close. But I think Catalina Cruiser is going to want the lead. Is going to get the lead. And John Sadler hasn't had a lot of success in British Cup races. But um, that's not to say that, you know, that he can't win. And uh, he's going to have a a big shot with Accelerate later. But I actually like Catalina Cruiser in this spot in the dirt mile more than Accelerate later in the Classic. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, I think John might be off the schneid by the time we get to the Classic. And let's talk about the Classic. In between, of course, the Distaff and the Classic, we get to see Enable in the Breeders' Cup turf. Uh, probably going to be maybe the shortest price of the two days uh, coming off her win in the arc. But let's go to the Classic, Mark. Uh, a really good full field. No standouts this year, that's for sure. Uh, a lot of people are going to spread like crazy in this race you've got some european faces coming in uh you've got some three-year-olds on the rise uh we talked a little bit earlier i think maybe we both lean towards mckenzie for bob baffert as the three-year-old who was impressive winning the pennsylvania derby and i I think he's going to run a big race in here but uh, baffert also has west coast on the also eligibles he's still trying to uh, get collected into the race. So Bob Baffert looking to win his fourth classic. What do you think of in here? Yeah, it's a great race. Um, in, in years past, you maybe were able to key in on a couple of horses and, and feel confident getting through the race. But this year, uh, you could go a number of different ways. Accelerates the favorite at 5-2 and two on the morning line, drawn way outside. I didn't really like his win in the awesome again. Uh, he ended up winning by two and a quarter lengths, but he didn't seem to be traveling as explosively as he had in the races prior. And the buyer speed figure came back and, and, and it's evident in that number that it wasn't as strong of a race. So um, I definitely don't think that he's a sure thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the horses that he beat at, at, on the West coast, Pavel has only one win recently, but that came over the, the track here at Churchill West coast seems to have maybe tailed off a little bit. Uh, Mike Smith, obviously had his choice of either West coast or McKenzie, you would imagine. And he's siding with McKenzie and um, that, that race for McKenzie coming off the long layoff. Uh, he missed the triple crown uh, trail, but he, he fired a huge shot off the bench in, in the Pennsylvania Derby. And uh, he, he should be able to take advantage of, of a forward trip as well. It's another race here where I don't see a whole lot of speed early. You have mind your biscuits coming out of, um, sprint races earlier in his career. He did go a mile and an eighth last time over this track and won impressively. Not sure how much he was beating in that grade three Lucas Classic. Toast of New York probably isn't on, on par with these horses. He's on the also eligible. And if he was in the race, he wouldn't make much of an impact. So it's hard to imagine a horse that's been a sprinter for most of his year, his career winning here at a mile and a quarter. But Mind Your Business comes into the race in strong form and uh, a little bit of a long shot, a lot of bit of a long shot actually with Axelrod at 30 to one. We're a little bit partial to him because we work with slam dunk racing. Um, but if you look at his form, he's gradually gotten better and better and better. Um, he, he gave McKenzie a little bit of a run in the Pennsylvania Derby, and he's kind of got the style where the extra distance you would think is going to work in his favor. And at 30 to 1 on the morning line, I think he's got a, a good shot to at least hit the board, if not uh, make a run at winning the whole thing. Well, you mentioned slam dunk racing, uh, one of our clients, and uh, we've got Richie Baltus on the podcast here. We've talked about him and next shares, but 
Another Horse Bills client that we want to wish all the best to is Brian Lynch. He's got Oscar performance in the mile. So ironically, Baltus versus Lynch, next shares versus Oscar performance. Uh, we'd like to see a dead heat there in the mile, Mark, for uh, two of our big clients. Yeah, that, the mile race, like most of the turf races, is, is wide open. You got the Euro influences coming in. You got some, some fillies from Europe coming over. Um, they all pretty much have sharp form. Um, the, the American horses uh, might be a little bit overmatched. I, I would lean more towards um, the Euros in this spot. However, next year's performance in the Shadowell was scintillating. And um, of the Americans, he's the one I like the most um, based off of that performance. If, if he can um, con continue the progression and, and match that effort or even improve a little bit potentially, I think he might have a chance of, of winning this race. Um, other than him, uh, I also kind of like on the far outside, Mustachery uh, for Sir Michael Stout and William Buick. This horse comes in having won three of the last four. Um, they're group twos and group threes, um, not the group ones. And we kind of saw that with Talismanic last year. He hadn't, didn't have the group one um, races on his past performances, but he was able to win the mile. So Mustachery here, uh, consistent horse, seven of 15 wins lifetime. Uh, I think that he might be the best of the Euros and uh, we'll look for him to potentially him and next year is coming down the lane, see who can win the Breeders' Cup mile. Well, those are some of our opinions for Breeders' Cup weekend, Friday and Saturday. Uh, it's going to be a great two days of racing as it always is and a chance to make a score on the gambling front. Mark, uh, we'll be participating at the windows and we really hope you enjoyed our very first podcast. For the love of the game, we're going to do this once a week and try to bring you some of the biggest names in racing from all over the country. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll uh, join us every week right here for this podcast, For the Love of the Game, presented by Horsebills.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great Breeders' Cup weekend.